From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. Customer centricity is not an initiative. It needs to be built into the DNA of the organization. And a lot of times customer focus will show up as a annual goal somewhere in a company. If you really want to do it right, it needs to start from day one, even before that, hiring for customer centricity. It's about aligning the incentives so that it's built into how we do business. Hi folks, Justin Schreiber here. Today I'm joined by Yamini Rongan, Chief Customer Officer at HubSpot. Yamini currently oversees sales, marketing, service, and customer success at a company that has literally written the playbook on how the next generation of companies is taking their products and services to market. It's hard to believe that someone who leads an organization of over 3,000 people once struggled to speak up in class. But Yamini learned early in life that continuous self-reinvention was the only way she'd reach the daunting goals that she'd set for herself. In today's episode, Yamini will take us on a journey from a small town in southern India to the C-suite of one of the hottest companies in tech. Along the way, she'll share advice on facing fears, leadership, and what it takes to build a truly customer-centric company. Let's get into the conversation. Welcome to the podcast. Justin, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. Well, I've really been looking forward to this conversation, particularly the opportunity to get into the customer experience, how HubSpot is reshaping it, and some of the insights that you've got for all of us marketers out there and and sales professionals. I do want to start, though. I want to go back to the beginning, and I think it's important that we talk about a very important role model in your life, your mother, I understand that your mother taught you to go against the grain from an early age. So I'd love to get that story. Yeah, absolutely. My mother is a force. Uh, She's a total force of nature, I will tell you. I grew up in a fairly small town, Justin, in what I would call like rural South India. Pretty hard pressed for you to go find it on the map today. But we grew up in a family, two daughters, pretty middle-class upbringing, I would say. Now, the town had one English medium school. All other schools were local language schools. And that English medium school kind of like went up to, you know, middle school when we were in elementary school and then went up to 10th grade and kind of like stopped at 10th grade by the time we got to middle school. And so we had to move cities to finish our education. But none of that actually deterred my mom. She had grown up in a big city. She had seen women take on a lot of professional responsibilities. And so she had like big ambitions. She was super dedicated to my sister and myself and our growth. She fed us incredible, you know, home-cooked meals, but she fed us a ton of ambition. And I will tell you, dinner table conversations were always about some Indian professional woman kind of breaking barriers and being a lawyer or the first woman pilot in India. She would bring 
these newspaper clippings of these women and she would put it in front of us and she would really encourage us to think about what we wanted to be. And when I was probably nine years old, she said to both my sister and I that you're going to go to the U.S. I want you to have a completely independent life and I want you to be economically independent. And at that time, now I'm talking 70s and 80s growing up in India, that was just completely different from what we were seeing in the society, but that didn't stop her from having big ambitions for us and encouraging us to really think about what we wanted to be when we grew up. And so she's been a major source of inspiration and she continues to support me as I've kind of grown in my career. It's astounding how when parents set expectations and present possibilities to young children, children just accept those as this is an avenue that's open to me. And at the same time, when those aren't presented, in many cases, those become the limiters that impede us in the future. Absolutely. I couldn't emphasize that enough. I'm Just one person believing in you can change the trajectory of your entire life. And I've been super lucky to have my mom, you know, be that for me. I also have the fortune of having a wonderful mother who who stretched me, inspired me, pushed me. I was watching a video on YouTube. I think this is one of those viral videos. It's about an Ibex. And it's a, have you seen this video? Yeah, about the Ibex. what you're talking about. Yeah. And, and they, I don't know what a child Ibex is called, but she scales the face of this dam to get these minerals midway up the dam. And the child just follows up behind and I couldn't help but think what a what a profound metaphor that is. When someone goes in front of us, particularly a parental figure, we assume that that's just the way. And rather than looking down at how scary it is, we're looking up at that person in front of us. So true. So true. I, I think that's just a beautiful metaphor. And it's certainly been the case in my life. Well, now you had a sibling. Were there any cases of sibling rivalry that you're willing to own up to? <laughs> Uh, I don't know if it was rivalry. So I, I do have an elder sister. She is two years older. So we were, you know, I was kind of always following her, right? And I was in school kind of known as Priya's sister. And I think at some point that grated on me. I was like, no, 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 I'm Yamini. Like I have a name. <laughs> and teachers would always call me Priya's sister. Now, my sister is wonderful. She ended up, you know, becoming a doctor. She leads, you know, emergency room for a hospital in California. And she's just an incredible source of strength for me. But I will tell you, growing up, hearing you needed to be independent, hearing that you needed to stand on your own feet and then following someone didn't quite sit well with me. So the moment of choice in terms of my career uh, came when I was in 12th grade and I was like, I am not becoming a doctor, not because I wanted to be an engineer, but because I'm kind of <laughs> done, you know, following her and we both, you know, laugh about it. So it's not as much of a live rivalry as much as like we both wanted very different things. So. so you landed in engineering as you started to receive that education. Did you feel like you'd found your calling in life? Not at all. Not at all. I, I One, because I wanted to be in some kind of a professional field and I didn't want to be a doctor. So it seemed like engineering was actually a reasonable path for me to take. So I, you know, landed there. 
The other part of it, I will tell you, was it was an exceptionally rough transition into engineering school. This was, again, like early 90s. It was rough for a couple of reasons. One, there was just lack of diversity in terms of the engineering school that I was at and and, and engineering schools in India at that time. We had less than 10% women in our class uh, within engineering. So that was difficult. But the more tougher transition for me was that women were distinctly unwelcome in that engineering school. And a lot of the first year, the conversations, part of the hazing that typically happens is, why are you here? Are you sure you're going to use this professional degree? Wouldn't you be better served if you took some kind of arts degree and you, you know, set up family. Literally, these were the questions that I had to face, women in my class had to face in the first year in engineering. And that was a very rough transition because, again, remember when, you know, I was growing up, my mom was like, yeah, you, you, can, you can become a pilot and you can become, you know, you can become a mountaineer if you wanted to. And she had this very positive, you know, force in our life. And then to go to an engineering school where your choices were questioned, it was really tough. And, you know, when you're faced with something like that, you have two choices. One is you begin to conform to what the broader society maybe had as expectations for women at that time, or you decide you're just going to break that barrier and you're going to establish your own identity that was outside of the societal you know, pressures of how women were supposed to be. And for me, it was almost a non-choice. It was the second, it was the latter. I did not want to confirm to, you know, what uh, was expected. And so I doubled down, Justin. That was Mm -hmm. the time when I said, oh, now I'm here at engineering school. I guess I'm not expected to be in engineering school. So I might as well prove that I'm going to be one of the best engineers the school produces. And so I doubled down. I'd never worked that hard as I did in the first, you know, three, four years. Well, it's a four-year program and worked super hard. I got very organized and I started like believing in myself and I graduated at the top of the class, but it was very tough. The, the lesson I would say for me was resilience and uh, really believing in myself and working, you know, hard and seeing the results was actually validation that, you know, I can achieve what I wanted to achieve if I set my mind to it. I love that term, double down, graduate at the top of your class. Not only that, you then went on to get an advanced degree in engineering, as if to say, I'll show, I'll show you guys, I'm not done yet. And you got your advanced degree at Clemson, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So right after I finished, you know, undergrad in India, took a one-way ticket, landed in Clemson. This was pre-internet. So my research of American universities was pretty limited. You know, I didn't know the geography and everything, but I, you know, was super happy to land in a really good program in Clemson. The shift from, you know, doing an engineering degree in India to doing one here in the U.S. was profound because one of the first classes I remember going to my first semester in computer engineering and one class had a 50% project work and 50% participation. Mm. And the minute I looked at the 50% participation, I was just a nervous wreck because 
growing up in India, especially the age and the time that I grew up in India, women were on mute. You know, you didn't actually share your thoughts. You certainly did not participate in classes. And, you know, you kept your ideas uh, to yourself. And here it said 50% participation. So for me, it was like, what am I going to say? And how am I going to actually cultivate a completely different muscle that I never exercised for a, quite a long period of my time? And, you know, I went to the TA and asked him, what does participation mean? And, you know, how do I actually participate in class? It was like super basic questions. And I would work, you know, hard and I'd come prepared to class. And by the time I raised my hand, someone else would have made the point. And I was always kind of like behind. And it was a tough transition. I certainly did not crush that course. I certainly did not learn that, you know, participation and cracking that participation code that easily. But I'll tell you, I kept working at it. I kept working at what would be the relevant points and when do you make the points known and how do you participate? And, you know, this is a cosmic joke because years later I got a feedback and uh, when I was in, in, a, in a tech company that I'm participating too much and I'm contributing too much and I should give space for others. And it was like this perfect cosmic joke because I had to work on it for many years to get it to the point where maybe I had overcorrected and then I had to find the balance. That term that you used, I was on mute. I think that's a particularly disturbing phrase because it calls to mind all of the voices out there that have been muted for, for whatever reason. And the fact that locked inside of, of those individuals is is profound insight, profound wisdom and expertise. I mean, anyone that does a YouTube or, or a internet search on you knows that you have so much to offer to the community. Um, so I am glad that you, in, a, in respect, took the mute button off at, at Clemson. We've, we've been better ever since. Thank you, Justin. It's not an easy journey, but a necessary one. And there's an incredible tenacity there that I think goes back to those childhood experiences where there's a sense of independence and confidence that allows you to continually confront barriers and just push through them. Yeah. And part of uh, me sharing my journey is about encouraging other women to be able to do the same thing. It is about breaking barriers. It is about believing in yourself. And if you have one person believing in you, start with that person. Mm -hmm. And that should give you the strength and the resolve to keep going. It's not easy, but I think it is, it's doable. If, uh, if I can do it, then many, many other people can do it. So. so the incredible drive that you exhibit is part of your professional journey. You've also had the good fortune of, of interacting with mentors that have helped you along the way. I'd love to hear about a few of the mentors that had a particularly big impact on your life. Absolutely. You know, as much as like parents have influence on you when you're kind of growing up, mentors have that influence on you as you are really blossoming into like a professional. And I've been uh, super thankful, grateful to have some incredible mentors along the way. I'd say two that come to mind uh, because of the profound influence they've had on me as a person and me as a professional. Mike Stanky, who is currently the vice chairman at Workday, I had the opportunity to work day in and day out with him for many years in the early stages of Workday. This was around 2011. We were going through a fairly hyper growth period. We went through the process of going public. We went through the process of doubling 
go to market in multiple years during that phase. And Mike was just brilliant. And he was one of the most brilliant operators in SaaS and in tech. And I'll tell you two things particularly stood out that I learned from him. The first is data-driven go-to-market. He completely believed that, you know, you had a discipline, a rigor in terms of approaching decisions, and he leveraged data beautifully in terms of scaling up the organization. And then the second is his ability to kind of look around the corners and really recognize patterns before they became a big problem as the company grew. And specifically in terms of the data-driven nature, you know, he had this repeatable process. He'd get up in the morning, he'd be there first thing <laughs> before any of us. He had a set of dashboards that he would look at us and he'd start sending emails around 5.45 in the morning. So all of us knew his rhythm. And if we didn't hear from him that morning, that means our numbers looked okay for the day. <laughs> and But more importantly, he'd say, you know, uh, in God we trust, everybody else bring data. So <laughs> it took a lot of the emotion out of the decisions, whether we agreed with him or not, we knew exactly how he got to the decision because it was a disciplined and rigorous approach to looking at data. So decisions around where would you double your sales teams? How would you enter into a new country, a new market, support a new team? All of those decisions were pretty rigorous and very, very much based on data. And uh, to this day, I have my set of dashboards that I wake up every morning with coffee. I have, you know, I have a series of dashboards that I look at and that discipline has really helped. Beyond that, I'd say another fantastic mentor, Carl Eschenbach, who is a partner at Sequoia right now. I, again, was super grateful to have him as part of my professional growth at Dropbox because Sequoia was an investor in Dropbox. And uh, early days, he spent a lot of time in helping us come up with the whole go-to-market set of decisions on product-led versus rep-driven motion. And, you know, there's a beauty about what, you know, uh, Carl actually taught me. His whole approach was asking brilliant questions. So, you know, what was unique about that approach is that he would simplify it down into two or three questions in a given topic, whether it was a topic around sales compensation or go-to-market expansion or country decisions, I'd go to him with something super complex and he would break it down into two questions he would ask. And therein was the brilliance. And it was brilliant in two ways because one, it was profound in terms of what he was asking. So it made you think and it made you, you know, feel like, okay, you, you have to go and dig into it. And the second thing is that he didn't come up with answers. You know, he would let us and he would let me come up with the answers. So uh, <laughs> there was a little bit of like, the way he made you feel was even better than the kind of advice that he provided. And I've really taken that approach of, as I've grown in my career, asking the right questions of the team and then allowing the team the space to come up with the answers themselves. And both of them have been just instrumental in my growth as a professional. So the questions that Carl would ask in a way would actually make you feel even smarter and more empowered. There's a real art to that. There's a real art to being able to ask questions, position questions that way. You know, and this is the part of how you have to grow as a leader is, you know, there's this whole, it's not what you say, it's not what you do, it's how you make, you know, people feel. That is the art that 
Carl has mastered. And, mm -hmm. uh, you, you know, you go into a conversation with a very complex topic and then, you you know, you probably didn't think about enough. But when you leave, you're like, oh, my God, I have answers somehow. <laughs> There's something intangible there that is profound. Leaders can master the playbook, the prescriptions, and that will only allow them to be average leaders. The leaders that are exceptional are the ones that know how to unlock potential. And they do that through the questions that they ask, through the quiet example that they exhibit. People walk away feeling like they're better people because of the interaction. And when you find someone like that, it's just such a special experience. Oh, 100%. You, you just nail it. And that's exactly right. That's what, you know, great leaders are about. That's what, you know... Uh, I aspire to be nowhere near that level of brilliance, but every day I, I focus on what are the questions to ask. I want to go back to, to the point that you made about Mike. While I was at LinkedIn, I had the, the privilege of observing how Jeff Weiner ran LinkedIn. And he was very similar, would get up early in the morning, he had his dashboards, he got into the dashboards, there would be emails that would go out. When we would do QBRs with Jeff, Jeff knew the data as well as the business operations analyst in the room, because he'd been going through it every day for the previous quarter. What that the impact that that had on the organization, number one, we all knew we had to bring our A game. Number two, we were able to very quickly get to a level of conversation and substance that we would not have been able to have had the executive in the room not had his or her arms around all of the information and the data. So it really was an incredible benefit, not just to Jeff to come up to speed, but the entire company. You know, what you're saying is absolutely true. A lot of times when you have uh, monthly business reviews or quarterly business reviews, we end up spending so much time looking backwards and looking, you know, I call that kind of like hindsight and looking backwards and saying, well, this is what we did. Having a data-driven organization where everyone is aligned on the right altitude of data to look at, the right level of diagnostics to look at. So when you do come to these conversations, it's really about the two or three things that you should be taking actions around rather than reviewing the hundred things that are actually happening within the business. And when you are able to elevate, looks like Jeff did this brilliantly, Mike did this brilliantly, when you're able to elevate it, the entire organization becomes data-driven. And uh, the, the other part of data-driven is that not data for the sake of data, but then you're able to drive actions and you are able to drive decisions forward faster because of the level of data centricity within an organization. Yeah. Well, I want to transition into your career. You've had some phenomenal wins under your belt. What I find remarkable, though, is in many cases, oftentimes people can come into a company when it's already established and, and the norms are have already been built. You, in many cases, are early stage and, and one of the architects of some of the great companies you and I had the opportunity to work together back at Siebel Oracle. You've been at Workday. You're at HubSpot. I wanted to talk a little bit about SAP, though, because I think that's really where you found your groove, which I would say is probably strategy. So tell me a little bit about that, how you landed in strategy and uh, and what that's meant for your career. Yeah, 
absolutely. Look, I, I went to business school at Berkeley and the market was really, really tough. And so I thought I was joining product marketing. And the first day when I joined, I was in overlay sales. And so it was an accidental sales career, but one that I am super grateful for. And uh, certainly early days at SAP, I was in value selling. It was an overlay role. You supported a bunch of reps in a particular region or a vertical. And for me, that was instrumental in kind of like early customer centricity because day in and day out, Justin, it was being on calls with customers, traveling to customer sites, understanding how they made decisions, how it got to a point where I was able to see that customers were making career you know, defining decisions when they made, you know, IT decisions, right? Like there were, you know, a bunch of folks that bet their careers on the decisions that they were making. And that was really powerful to see. You couldn't see it on a day-to-day basis, but if you string together the patterns across multiple conversations, three, four years of, you know, doing the same thing, you can see that very, very clearly. There was a point in my career at SAP where I transitioned from that overlay sales role to helping the organization come up with a five-year game plan for the sales organization. And the first you know, time that opportunity came, I was like, well, I don't know anything about this, but I, let me try this. And it seems very, very intellectually stimulating as well as high impact. So I just got into it. And that was the aha moment for me from a strategy. It was putting together years of being in front of customers, understanding those patterns and and then bringing it to bear in thinking through how would a billion, multiple billion dollar in a business unit kind of continue to grow and what was the path and how did we make decisions that actually helped that organization grow. And that combination of from the ground feedback of what customers were saying and what the front lines were seeing combined with you know, the strategic uh, choices that an organization has made. That has been the intersection that I really enjoyed throughout my career. So as is often the case with a, with a brilliant individual contributor, the reward is you get to start to manage people. Out of curiosity, how many people are, are in your organization today? I would have to say probably like 3,000-ish, you know. <laughs> so it's big. It's a big yes. organization. It's got a comma in there. Was your journey into management an easy one? Is that something that just kind of came naturally to you? Not at all. It was it was spectacularly poor. <laughs> tell me about that first management experience. Uh, it was it was really really poor. I will I'll tell you that you know I actually was an individual contributor for a fairly long period in in my career, uh, specifically after business school, and then I went through a time where I managed you know small teams, and then it very quickly grew into manager of managers. You know, my playbook for being a manager was completely flawed. And by the way, I think this is the part that is not said. Most individual contributors want to be managers. I was like, I had this this level of excitement of being a first manager and then realized that it's a very treacherous journey to kind of like scale. My playbook as an individual contributor was work super hard complete all my projects ahead of schedule, be exceptional at getting answers for questions that might come my way. And those were exactly opposite to what I needed to do as a manager. 
I couldn't work super hard because I was setting the wrong pace for the organization. I couldn't run and finish my projects on time because I'm not enrolling my team behind what the purpose of what we were doing. And I certainly shouldn't have been giving all the answers and I should have been really much better at asking questions. And so it was literally, you know, I did everything wrong uh, in my first few years as a manager and I have 360 feedback to prove it. They were brutal. (laughs) And I'd look at it and I still remember one of the most brutal feedbacks that I looked at it. And I'm like, I cannot recognize myself in this. I've kind of turned into this. And I literally at that point said, maybe I'm suited for being an individual contributor. I just had so much fun doing what I was doing. And all I had to do was my own time and my own, you know, results. And maybe I'm absolutely not suited for this. And I took a look at that. Part of what happens is that when you get feedback like that, uh, your tendency is to say, oh, the company is not right, or my manager is not right, or my team is not right, or my peers are not right, because uh, they all got to be like missing something so good about myself, because as an individual contributor, I was doing so well. Then, you know, when you begin to see the patterns and the feedback kind of continuing to follow you, whether you change your company or change your managers or change your team or change your peers, then you're like, no, 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 it's me. You know, this is all on me. This feedback is not going to go away. And there was a point of reckoning for me to say, no, I didn't want to be an individual contributor. And yes, I have tremendous amount of work to reinvent what I need to be in order to be a good leader, not just a good manager. And there's a ton of difference being between being a good manager and a good leader. So I reinvented myself. Uh, I started by not denying any of this feedback, but embracing the feedback, which was a rough part of the journey. And I started by getting a uh, coach and I, I went and actually talked to a few different coaches and I found one who would ask the most difficult and pressing questions of me and was not afraid to push me in terms of my own perceptions of myself and, you know, where I was getting feedback from. And then I probably bought every single book I could find in terms of being a better manager. Uh, I like cleaned out Amazon, I think. And I found, you know, a couple of really um, incredible books. One is Mindset by Carol Dweck, which is all about working on whether you have a fixed mindset or you have a growth mindset and how do you take, you know, the feedback in a very progressive manner. And then the other one was Trillion Dollar Coach. It was, it's a, it's a whole story of Bill Campbell, who is probably one of the best, you know, executive coaches. And he's, you know, had such a huge impact in Silicon Valley. And I still read these two books annually because I get something from it that I haven't. And it has taken a while. I still, you know, get feedback and I still look at parts of the feedback and I know I have to work. And so it's leadership is really the mountain with no top, but the journey was rough. It tests you. And if you can persevere, then there is, you know, good impact to be had. And the most fulfilling part of it is that when you do have impact on people now, then you feel like, okay, you've, you've actually moved forward in terms of your journey. I can't help but think of that individual contributor that asked, do I have what it takes to manage one person? And now 
as someone who's managing a, an incredibly successful organization of over 3,000 people. It's a testament to the journey that you've been on. I think also, though, it's important to call out that, and this is my experience, managing frontline, secondline management is, is the hardest thing to do because you are very close to the work that needs to be done and you know how to do it because you've done it yourself. You're also accountable to senior management for delivering high quality work on time, on spec. And, and so you're kind of in the middle versus as an individual contributor, all you got to do is do the work. And as an executive, you're relying on your managers to get the work done. So it is a very hard moment of transition as you're rising through the ranks. Oh, you're, you're bringing up a really brilliant point. I think as much as there is excitement, people don't realize it's a toughest transition for all the reasons that you're articulating. This is also why that, you know, at HubSpot and other places, I spend a lot of time on career development and, you know, how do you help people actually navigate that, you know, particular transition in their careers? It's very hard to do. And, there's a certain amount of being in the details, but yet not getting in the way of the people that you're managing that you have to master at that point. That's Yamini Rangan, Chief Customer Officer at HubSpot. When we come back, Yamini will give us an insider's view on HubSpot and some of the ingenious ways that they've engineered customer centricity into every aspect of their business. Stay with us. I'm Justin Schreiber, and you're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing. Welcome back. My guest today is Yamini Rangan, Chief Customer Officer at HubSpot. Coming up, we'll discuss why HubSpot has carved out a unique position among sales and marketing solution providers and how they put the customer at the center of everything they do. We'll also learn more about Yamini's efforts to open doors for rising talent, particularly women and first-generation Americans. Let's get back into the conversation. Well, I want to spend a little bit of time on HubSpot. There are a few companies out there that have really built game-changing categories. I would I would put HubSpot on that short list with inbound and the work that's being done there. Tell us a little bit about HubSpot. What makes it such a unique and impactful company? You know, I think HubSpot started with a powerful core idea, which is that marketing in order for marketing to be effective, you need to attract people rather than interrupt them. And that was a whole paradigm shift, Justin. You've been in this industry for a long time, but that was a whole paradigm shift in terms of how do you add value to your prospects in a way that they are attracted to what you are able to offer as a company. And it was a simple concept. It was a very powerful concept. And the approach that HubSpot took back then, um, which continues now, is this combination of methodology and technology. The methodology is the whole inbound methodology of what does it mean to provide value? What does it mean to attract? What does it mean to get inbound instead of interrupting someone via a call or interrupting um, with a marketing message? And then provided the technology around how do you actually implement that within an organization, and that was like super powerful. Now, you know, almost 15 years later, I think our product and company looks very different right now. 
And we've gone beyond that inbound into what we think about as a flywheel methodology. And the flywheel concept is, again, fairly simple, which is you have to bring together marketing, sales, and customer success so you can attract, engage, and delight. But you have to put the customers at the center of this. And we can talk a lot about all the blockers to you know, why organizations are not able to put the customers at the center and be able to spin the flywheel around the customers. But again, we're kind of doing the same thing, which is methodology and technology. The methodology part of it is how do you break silos? How do you bring these customer-facing organizations together and provide the right strategy, the right level of alignment, the right systems, and the right incentives so that you know you can actually scale and then provide the technology to be able to do all of that. I think that's what has been unique in how we've approached multiple categories. So many companies talk about creating value through the content that they share, but when you really look at the content, it's derivative in nature, it's restating what's already been out there. I think everyone that has been a student of what HubSpot has done recognizes that there's true thought leadership. There is a real investment in high-quality minds that are producing high-quality pieces of work and making that generally available to people um, that then fuels demand for the technology that follows behind. 100%. And the way we look at it is that, you know, we, we certainly provide the code, which is the technology, but even more importantly, we provide the content and the community to bring both of those together, right? The mm-hmm. content piece is what you're talking about. We've made pretty significant investments in our academy. And the academy is about thoughtful, thought leadership content that helps people build their own careers in any go-to-market field of choice. And then bringing together the community so that they can actually exchange information and uh, be you know, thought leaders amongst their peers and continue to kind of grow uh, in their careers. And I think that's kind of worked. Yeah. So you're certainly practicing what you preach. You have an unusually large remit, sales, marketing, customer service, customer success, all roll up underneath you. Can you talk a little bit about, number one, the rationale for bringing it all together, but then also from a firsthand perspective, what have been the aspects of the way you've run this to make all of that working together successful? It goes back to this combination of methodology, technology that we believe in. So our, you know, Primary focus is that the flywheel spins when you have all of the teams kind of aligned around the same core customer-facing strategy. That's the belief. And so when Brian started talking to me about this, I was just super excited because, you know, to be a customer executive in a customer-focused organization is probably the best thing that you can get, right? You're not pushing, you know, the organization forward, but you're actually helping them propel the vision. There were a couple of reasons why we went through this flywheel approach in terms of internal organization. First one is typically when you go to the marketing organization, sales organization, customer success and say, hey, what's your strategy? They'll come back with, you know, grow ARR or increase leads or, you know, contribute to, you know, NPS. And those are okay, but they are very functional in nature. And that's kind of what was happening at HubSpot, very functional strategies, but not customer in strategies. And we wanted to be able to deliver a delightful customer experience, which meant that we needed to focus on customers in terms of our strategic approach. 
I think the second part of it is that as we were growing, you know, and scaling, silos impacted how quickly we could make decisions. So we have a saying at, at HubSpot that we didn't want to get big and slow as we were growing. We needed to be big and fast. And in order for us to be big and fast, you had to break down silos internally. You had to bring all of these customer-facing organizations so that there is a known cadence, there is an aligned strategy, and the decision-making of how you're running the business and scaling the business is exceptionally clear. And so that's what we set out to do. You know, the last year has been a lot of focus on really bringing together these teams, one, so that we could pivot as, you know, the pandemic was unfolding in a much faster, agile manner, but more importantly, get the teams aligned on the overall go-to-market strategy. And now if you ask our teams, they will say the focus is delivering delightful customer experiences at scale. And that's whether you are in marketing or sales or customer success. So that's the level, level of alignment we've been able to drive uh, by focusing on the customers and the customer experience first. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the operational cadence that you use to run the business on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, on a quarterly basis. What does that look like? I think part of how you have to scale is driving an operational cadence that allows people to make decisions. The first part of this, I will tell you, I'll start with how you get to that operating cadence. It is by setting the clear strategy. For us, it's having clear strategy of where we are going to be, what the winning aspiration looks like over the next three years, and getting every single member of the leadership team aligned on you know, that, that strategy. Once we do that, we have you know, bi-weekly operating cadence of meeting as a flywheel leadership team. We know the topics that we need to go through. We know the decisions that we need to make, and we know how we will make the decisions, which is aligned with our three-year go-to-market strategy. And so That's kind of really high level. And and I would say that part of this is having a philosophy that you are only as strong as the leadership team around you. So I don't believe that I make decisions. I provide clarity on where we are going as an organization. And we have phenomenal leaders that make the decisions on a day-to-day basis based on where we are going as an organization. So A lot of times, you know, the first step is having the business strategy and then very important follow-up is making sure that the organizational structure and the leaders that you put in place are able to execute on that strategy. And then from there on, the, you know, cadence is somewhat straightforward, Justin, bi-weekly meetings, monthly business performance reviews, and quarterly business reviews that we actually look at this. Now, stepping backwards in a year, we do set up a cadence where we start is that Q1 is the kickoff season. As you probably know, you know, we go through all kinds of kickoffs within the organization, making sure that there is alignment in terms of where we are going and what each individual is doing to be able to impact that. Q2, we call it the think big season. And for us, it is you know, stepping back from all of the kickoffs and every experiment and pilot that we've kicked off to really step back and say, where is this business today? What are the trends that we see impacting us over the next you know, maybe 24 to 36 months? And therefore, how do we need to adjust our strategy? So that's the think big season. 
We try and be as open-ended about the prompts and questions that we ask of the leaders. We spend days kind of debating. And then coming out of this Think Big season is what we call as the planning season. And uh, that starts in Q3, where we then translate our three-year vision into one-year annual plans. And then Q4 is basically execute and set goals for the next year. And so we know that this is the operating cadence. We know when decisions get made. So you don't distract the teams in terms of coming up with new ideas and new plans in Q1 or trying to you know, jam another initiative in Q4 because we know the times in the year that we will ask broad questions, the times in the year that we will make operational plans for the next year. And when you set that up, the whole organization falls into that pattern. So you don't quite waste time as you typically would by having that cadence. So I think this is an important part of how you continue to scale. I love the fact that you're already into planning for the next year in Q3. So arguably just halfway into your current year, there's a a maturity there in acknowledging that this takes time. It requires thought. So many companies, I think, at least in Q4 and more often than not last quarter of the or the last month of the year are saying time to plan for next year. And what ends up happening is the plan takes what the plan takes. And so the plan doesn't come out until halfway through Q1 at best. And then you lose the momentum of Q1 because you're still trying to figure out what's going on. There's a lot of, I think, wisdom in having a structured approach like that so that every quarter there's something that's contributing to the business. Absolutely. You know, I've been in so many organizations where you don't get your targets until half a quarter is done. And we just cannot operate in that manner for scaling. So for HubSpot, we talk a lot about fast start and, you know, getting this cadence right and making sure that we spend the right amount of time making the decisions enables us to like start really fast. We don't waste time. You know, when territory changes need to happen, they happen. And then when uh, reps have to go into the new territories, they are already armed with what is the strategy? What are the set of plays that we are running? Therefore, what do they need to do with their you know particular books of business? And that helps you continue to scale. Well, you just announced a major milestone, 100,000 customers. First of all, congratulations on that phenomenal achievement. I'd love to get your perspective on what, first of all, why does this matter? Why, why are you making such a big deal about it? And what did you do to actually achieve that milestone? Yeah, you know, it is a milestone. If you really step back, HubSpot's mission is to help millions of organizations grow better. And millions is being the key word. So it's a milestone. I think we're more than anything grateful for the trust that 100,000 customers have had in us throughout our journey. I'd say a couple of things that have shaped our approach. First is we have a North Star within HubSpot, which is solve for the customer, SFTC. And if you didn't know these acronyms, day one that you join, whether virtually or in real life, you'll hear SFTC. It's literally the conversation during onboarding, during ramp up, and continues to be as part of our operating rhythm and cadence. And one of the things that I love about HubSpot is that we don't just talk about solving for the customer. Every month, we have a customer first meeting. We typically will bring customers in a panel. Our entire management team and senior leaders are present at that meeting. So, you know, 
I don't have a, to, to go to the product people and be like, hey, our customers are saying this because they're actually in those meetings, actually listening to customers. And we follow that with quantitative research. So there's this good balance between qualitative feedback and quantitative feedback that turns into action across the organization. And that is a fundamental driver to how we can continue to be a customer-obsessed culture. I'd say the second part of it is that we've taken a very different approach to our market. A lot of organizations end up you know, acquiring companies and cobble together in different solutions. And we think that that actually impacts customer experience because the tax of you know, bringing all these cobbled solutions end up falling on the customer, not on the company that's actually acquiring. And so we've taken a very different approach of crafting in-house, you know, just beautiful solutions that really focus on the UX and really focus on delivering value to our customers. And that, again, has allowed us to look at adjacent areas where customers have said, hey, we need help in this uh, additional space. So then we can take that same crafted approach to be able to do that. And one of the other parts that I have really come to appreciate and how we think about growing uh, is that we focus on building careers. What I mean by that is HubSpot's initial product was marketing automation. And we took the persona of a marketing operations leader. And we said, what is this person going to need for them to be successful in their career? What information can we provide? What training can we provide? What kinds of communities can we provide? And therefore, what solution software can we provide? And so we've really taken this approach of building careers, not just software. And as we've continued to expand the personas from the original focus on a marketing ops to a sales ops and a sales rep that is using a CRM solution to a customer support agent using knowledge base to revenue operations. As we go through that, you know, we've really focused on helping our customers build careers. So when they go from one company to the other, you know, they go and you know bring HubSpot with them. And so I think our approach is largely, you know, part of how we've kind of thought about the market. I think the brilliance of that strategy is that you have literally engineered into your process the checkpoints that allow you to come back to the customer refocus on what the customer needs, the value the customer is getting, and that forces you to stay laser focused on that. Whereas it's so easy simply to say, oh, sure, we put the customer first, but that's in word only and not in deed. Yeah. Customer centricity is not an initiative. It needs to be built into the DNA of the organization. And a lot of times customer focus will show up as a annual goal somewhere in a company, it's not an annual goal. If you really want to do it right, it needs to start from day one. Actually, even before that, hiring for customer centricity, you know, it starts even before that in terms of the competencies that you look for. It certainly is day one onboarding. It certainly is all of the listening posts that you create, you know, across the organization to deeply listen. And it's about aligning the incentives so that it's built into how we do business. And uh, that's certainly how we think about it. Let me end on a slightly different topic. You are self-described as a first-generation American and woman in STEM. I'd love to find out responsibilities that title brings with it and how you're trying to live up to that title. 
I knew you were going to ask this and I will tell you, <laughs> I've been here in this country now for 26 years and it took me 24 years to actually say that I'm a first generation immigrant and a woman in STEM. And therein lies part of the, part of the issue and the responsibility I feel. Justin, I'm an introvert. I do not like talking about myself. I do not like you know, talking about my personal journey, but I will tell you every time I do share and I talk about the journey as a first generation immigrant and as a woman in STEM, it has an impact because I'll, I'll actually get a note from someone saying, I listened to you say this, and this is exactly the struggle. I was kind of uh, wondering how I was going to break through a certain barrier and the way you have done it has helped me think about my career. And that is meaningful. And partly, I do sense that that's kind of my responsibility to be able to share the journey so that it can inspire others. The other part of it, I will say, is part of my journey has been doubling down on myself, working twice as hard, uh, being in some male-dominated fields and still kind of breaking through you know, some of the barriers. And when people ask me, so how do you do that? My answer is not a good one. The answer is actually, yeah, I worked twice as hard or, you know, I just kept going at it even when it felt like I couldn't make it happen. And I do sense that that's not the right answer or a sustainable answer for the next generation of women uh, and leaders, you know, from very diverse places to actually make a mark. You can't, we cannot turn to the next generation and say, work twice as hard. And so part of uh, my responsibility, and I certainly feel this, is just making the system better, making it you know, easier for people from all kinds of you know, diverse areas to actually thrive as leaders. And so I, I certainly spend a lot of time. I try to coach you know, women earlier in their careers that have a ton of potential. I try to contribute to causes that are about you know, education as well as continuing uh, journeys as leadership. And that's certainly how I look at it. Well, we've got time for one more question. I'll make it a very small question. As you look back over the arc of your life, if you had to boil it down to one thing, what would be that thing that you feel has made the biggest difference in your life? Perseverance. Just comes down to perseverance. And I do have to say that I've had people believe in me. That always helps. But uh, just never giving up. Cannot give up. I love that. Well, thank you so much for that wisdom, that advice, and for the, the brilliant career you've built and what you've shared with all of us. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to talk to you and really appreciate the time. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams' inboxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.